0: Well, good evening, or should I say good Friday? (laughs) All right, well, we're glad you guys came out to join us tonight. It is a joy to uh, worship with you in song, and as you see, we have the Lord's table set before us, and tonight we have the privilege of looking into God's holy word. And so if you have your Bibles with you tonight, open up with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, Mark 15, and if you have a little flyer that you got handed when you stepped in this morning, you see that tonight's sermon is entitled this, The Day of Jesus died, the day Jesus died. I was talking with someone earlier tonight about how, I don't know if you heard, but KSBJ, that radio station some of us like to listen to, had a little uh, number that if you text Easter to the number, they would keep you up to date of the events that happened throughout kind of the Easter weekend. It was kind of neat getting different texts throughout the day of this is when Jesus was crucified, and this is when he was on the cross, and this is when he said it, was, it, is, it is finished. And so uh, this is definitely the day that we celebrate. I know we're looking forward to Resurrection Sunday, right, when he arose, but tonight's an appropriate night for us to come together and to take a look at what he did On Good Friday, so very long ago, the day Jesus died. Mark chapter 15, and we're gonna read the text and then we'll dive right into our time together this evening. Let's start reading in verse 16, if we can. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him. Hail, king of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down and, and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, "'The King of the Jews.'" They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right hand and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest, also along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus said, Uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Father, we bow our heads yet again this evening as we're sobered by the truth and the extreme of the perfect sacrifice of your precious son in our place. God, thank you for the perfect life he lived, and thank you for the righteous death he died, that we could be freed from our sin, and that he bore your wrath in full so that we could be forgiven tonight. God, help us as we listen to this message from your word. I pray that your spirit would illuminate each and every heart, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that you would change us tonight, all because of the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout history, there have been many attempts to identify the perfect symbol that would most accurately represent Christianity. There have been several su- suggested icons that would tell the heart of the story of our faith. Maybe you've seen a dove. Or a fish, or the ichthus, which is really the fish, a throne, an empty tomb. but none of these really comes to the heart of Christianity and what Christianity is all about. None of these describe in one picture, the true essence of the Christian faith. There is only one identifying symbol of true Christianity that would accurately describe the purpose of for which Jesus came and the point of our lives today. This is the only universal unifying symbol that de- that depicts what is what it is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know exactly what I'm talking about before I even have to say it. We're talking about the cross, right? We're talking about the cross of Christ. It's a cross, an empty cross, not a crucifix, but a simple, empty, rugged cross. Wherever there is the expression of Christian faith, there is a cross. There are crosses upon churches and crosses upon Christian schools and upon Christian hospitals, and there are crosses upon tombstones and upon various Christian buildings. There are even crosses around people's necks decorated as pieces of jewelry. Not mangers, not cribs, not fishing boats, not empty tombs, not thrones, but crosses. Without question, the one single most identifying mark of Christianity is the cross. Paul said, we preach Christ and Him crucified. He later said, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the entirety of our theology is summarized in the cross of Christ. In many ways, this should strike us as surprising when we remember the horror and the merciless way the crucifixion was carried out in the ancient world. The practice of crucifixion was most likely invented by barbarians who lived long ago and who were intent on showing cruelty. The first known use of the crucifixion actually wasn't by the Romans, but rather by the Persians, even many centuries before Rome adopted this method. The Persians believed that the one being persecuted was a cursed individual. Galatians 3 says, Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree, and there is certainly much similarity between a man hanging on a tree to his death and being crucified on the cross. The Persians believed that if someone was found guilty and was to be executed, that person is cursed. Furthermore, the thought that if the cursed person touched the ground when they were crucified, the curse of the individual would be transferred to the land. At this point, the land would be cursed, and those who ate from the land would be cursed, and those in the country would be cursed. And so, for this reason, they developed a mode of crucifixion by which they would lift the condemned up-off land, the earth and stick him up on a cross so as to remove the curse and the association of guilt. At this point, the individual would be suspended in the air with his feet off the ground so no foundation was there to stand on. In this way, the curse could not be spread to the land or to the people. And the cursed man would be lifted up between heaven and earth, between God and man, between justice and law. And this was the execution of the Persians. Now, when Alexander the Great went out from Greece and conquered the entire known world, he brought this mode of crucifixion back to his country and to the entire Mediterranean area. And from the Mediterranean area, it spread to Egypt. And from Egypt, it spread to Carthage, and from Carthage it spread to Rome. And when the crucifixion was adopted by the Romans, they perfected it to a fine art. They demonstrated efficiency and much skill. Under the Romans, the crucifixion became the most cruel and most dreaded form of execution that has ever been known to man. Death by the guillotine, by drowning, by being burned at the stake, by hanging by a firing squad, by the gas chambers, by the electric chair, by a lethal injection, all result in death in just a few seconds or moments at the most. But the crucifixion is so barbaric that it involved a slow, painful death. Death on a cross intentionally and deliberately delayed death until a maximum torture had been inflicted upon the individual and usually spanned the time of one, two, or even three days of utter agony. When the Romans adopted the practice, it was only reserved for their worst crimes, such as murder, insurrection, or high treason. It was so cruel and so horrible, so barbaric, that no Roman citizen could be crucified unless they had committed the very worst of crimes. It eventually became the common way to execute non-Roman citizens and slaves. And yet Jesus suffered innocently for you and for me on the cross of Calvary. What place does the cross have in your life today? Have you come to believe in the message of the cross Have you come to embrace the cross? Do you live every moment of every day for the cross? Or is the cross still foolishness to you? Is the cross secondary or peripheral? Is the cross an ancient memory or a present meditation? For all of us who are truly born again, blood-bought believers, the cross is primary, primary. The cross is central. The cross is at the apex of all we hold dear. Is it true that the one word that would adequately summarize your life would be the cross? Tonight, we're going to be looking into the crucifixion account of our Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight, we're going to look at the day that Jesus died. And I want to give you three headings as we dive into this text tonight. And we're going to look at the persecution of Jesus the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the death of Jesus. So, let's look at these three headings together, if we might, tonight. The first one is this, number one, the persecution of Christ. Now, here in Mark chapter 15, we read in verse 16, the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman court. Now, I want us to take note that here in this section of Mark and at this time frame in the ancient world, the muscle of the pagan empire in a way was being flexed. As we know, Rome was in charge uh, with their Roman empire, and they even ruled over the Jewish uh, nation to do what they wanted. And they allowed the Jews to do some things here and there, but pretty much Rome was flexing flexing its muscle in a major way. Now, notice we're kind of picking up right here in the middle of of, uh, Mark chapter 15, and you need to know a little bit about what's already happened on this day, the day Jesus... Jesus died. Well, Jesus had been arrested the night before. And by the way, the Jewish uh, day, the next day starts the evening of, of the, uh, and then it runs throughout the night and then throughout the morning till the next evening. And so Jesus had been arrested the night before in the garden of Gethsemane. He went through one false trial after another through the night. According to verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, early in the morning, he was condemned by the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole Jewish council. He had been delivered to the Roman governor Pilate. A crowd had gathered and demanded that Jesus be crucified. That's where we are up to this point, and you know what happened there in verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. This picks up our text tonight. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. And so here we see the power of this pagan empire. It's almost ironic that God's son would be taken captive by a human government and human soldiers, which did him much harm. And yet we know all along it was in accordance with God's perfect plan. It was ordained before the beginning of time. This was Jesus following his father's mission for his purpose here on earth. And the praetorium where they met was probably the palace, Many believe it to be probably the palace of Herod, who was reigning as king of the Jews, if you will, really a pawn under the Roman government. And whenever Pilate would move from Caesarea, which was over in the Mediterranean coast, over to Jerusalem to set up office, he would set up office there in Herod's palace in the praetorium. It was really more like a fortress. They could have at any time some 100 soldiers on hand. In fact, in this case, they said they had a Roman cohort there. This is showing the military strength. A cohort is one-tenth of a legion. A legion of Roman soldiers is 6,000 soldiers, so that tells us that there was at least 600 men present. Maybe even some extra soldiers had accompanied Pilate on his trip from Caesarea. And so here we see Pilate doesn't want to deal with the matter. You know the story. He washes his hands. He he wants to give him Barabbas, but the crowd says, no, 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 Uh, give us Jesus. You know, we want to crucify him. We're going to crucify Jesus. And so Pilate had Jesus scourged and then handed him over to be crucified. Now, as you know, to be scourged was to be whipped in the worst sort of way. Scourging was to take place with a whip known as a flagellum consisting of a wooden handle to which metal-tipped leather thongs were attached. Being scourged with a flagellum was a fearful ordeal, ripping the flesh down to the bone, causing severe bleeding. This was a, a beating from which many prisoners would die from exhaustion or from dehydration or from just bleeding to death, loss of blood. And while these mighty soldiers seemed to have the upper hand, we know that God will have his way even through the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ. As we know, that true power belongs not to the government, belongs not to uh, the empire, belongs, praise God, not to the North Koreans. Amen. The true power belongs to God. It doesn't even belong to the U.S., right? True power belongs to God. And it's almost as if while this is happening, there's a part of us that's like, oh, no, they've got God's Son, and they're, they're whipping Him, and He's going to be crucified. And Yet at the same time, as Christians, we know this is part of God's plan, and we know this has been um, ordained from the foundation of the world. It's been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, Maybe we could even be encouraged by looking at Psalm 2. Maybe I'll just read it for the sake of time, but you know this passage well. Psalm 2, verse 1 and following says this, excuse me, says this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's a response to what the world thinks they're doing. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, "'But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain.'" Throughout the Old Testament, Zion would often be referred to as the city of Jerusalem. Mount Zion would be Mount Calvary. God is saying, even through the psalmist in Psalm 2, that what you think you're doing to my son, whipping him, about to crucify him, is part of my perfect plan because I'm setting into motion my son who will reign over the world, who will reign in the heart of every believer, who will forgive every repentant soul. God's not worried on this day. God knows that he holds the power, ultimate power, in his hands. And yet we see as we read on in Mark chapter 15 and verses 17 through 20, we see the mockery of these Roman soldiers. Look at verse 17. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So here we see, obviously, they, they, they uh, take this uh, purple robe Purple was known in the ancient world as being uh, the royal color. It was a little bit more expensive to dye that way. Probably this robe wasn't a deep, nice purple robe, but maybe one discarded and faded, maybe like a soldier's cape. They took it and they placed it around him, and then they took the, 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 the thorns and they placed it around his head like a crown. You guys know that there were many bushes in the desert, uh, desert terrain of uh, Jerusalem and of Israel, and so, many of these bushes had these horrendous thorns. Some would say it would be up to an inch thick, and they took these, these thorns and made it into a crown and placed it on God's Son. Thorns are part of God's curse on man. Thorns and thistles are even mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 18. Jesus does deserve a crown, and one day he'll get the crown that will show his supremacy. Not a crown of suffering, but a crown of supremacy. And we too will have crowns that we'll cast at his feet. Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 and following says this, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so even in the midst of this this difficult day of the crucifixion, we're reminded throughout the account of other pictures that will happen, not of Jesus's suffering, but of his supreme and everlasting rule. Here in verse 18, they mocked him with homage, saying, hell, king of the jews there in verse 18 we read and they began to acclaim him hail king of the jews maybe it was one soldier at a time maybe it was them all together all at once how they did it we don't know but we do know this we will all hail jesus as lord one day for in the new testament in the epistle of philippians paul writes this in philippians 2:10 and 11 so that at the name of jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, not only did they hail him as king in a mocking kind of way, verse 19 tells us they beat him with a stick. They kept beating his head with a reed. We'll just pause there for a second. They took a reed, put it in his hand as if it were a scepter, and then they would take it out of his hand and hit him over the head with this reed. Now, Psalm 2, we've already alluded to, if we pick back up where I left off, and Psalm 2 says this, "'I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel.'" Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Well, too bad these soldiers didn't really understand that while they were taking a reed and making fun of Jesus as some kind of make-do scepter that God had already prophesied in Psalm 2, that Jesus will rule with a scepter, a rod of iron, and all nations will bow to his, to, to his kingdom. So they beat him with this stick. Not only did they do that, but verse 19 says, they spit on him with their mouths. There in 19, we see again, uh, they beat him with a stick and spitting on him. The most disgust, disgusting thing you could do in the Jewish culture would be to call somebody a dog, or to spit on them with spittle out of your mouth. And that's exactly what these soldiers are doing to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're treating him as an outcast, as a criminal, and they're now literally spitting upon him. And yet we read later in the Bible, in Revelation 3, 15 and 16, Jesus says to the churches, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you. Out of my mouth. They bow before him there as they're making fun of him. At the end of verse 19, they're bowing and kneeling before him. And we know, as we've already read in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. One day we'll do it not out of mockery, but out of true worship. Even these that were there, because Philippians says those who are under the earth and on the earth will all bow down and confess Jesus as Lord. It'll happen again. This time it'll be a truth, not that that'll get them out of their eternal punishment if they didn't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Let's move on to verse 20. Here we see they took off their purple robe, and after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put uh, his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Can you imagine the pain of after having this, this purple robe on your back, and you'd just been scourged and had your back cut into shreds, at kind of like a, a bandage forms on a womb as it begins to scab over. They ripped this robe off in more mockery and more pain and then put Jesus' own garments on him. And so we see the might of this pagan empire. We see the mockery of these soldiers. And then we also see there's a man who bore the cross for Christ. Look at verse 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Customarily, a condemned man would carry his own cross to the place of conviction, to the place of punishment. The Jewish way of carrying out capital punishment was actually by stoning But here they're under the Roman control, and as you know, the crucifixion was their mode of execution. And so the criminal would would either drag his cross behind him, or in some cases, just drag the crossbeam. It's estimated that the crossbeam itself would have weighed 100 pounds. And if the crossbeam was already fastened to the post, it could be some 200 pounds on his back that he was asked to drag to Golgotha. Due to the fact that Jesus had been beaten up all night in his illegal trial, beaten badly shortly after daybreak with a scourging whip, mocked horribly by the Roman soldiers and no doubt bruised and bleeding all over, he was not able to physically carry his cross. And so the soldiers grabbed a bystander by the name of Simon of Cyrene, which is just of uh, west of Egypt in northern Africa, modern day Libya. At this time in history, there was a large Jewish colony there, and no doubt Simon was a Jewish name, and he had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And Simon was most likely the father of Alexander and Rufus, mentioned in Romans chapter 16 and verse 13. This account of Simon carrying the cross is found only here. In Mark. The Synoptic Gospels don't talk about Simon. John doesn't talk about Simon, but Mark does, and I believe that it's here for a reason and a purpose, and I think that Mark's intention, I could be wrong, so I admit maybe a little speculation here, but I think Mark wants to help us personally identify with what it would have been like to carry the cross of Christ. Each one of us tonight. Would have to think about what if you were there watching Jesus as he went through this horrible beating, persecution, as he's walking towards the crucifixion, if the soldier had to out your name and asked you to pick up that crossbeam, carry it on your back. It just kind of personalizes a little bit more that Jesus did this for us, but we've also been called that we would come and die and be crucified with him. Jesus physically did this for you, and maybe even the thought of Simon carrying that crossbeam would remind us all that we have a cross to carry in a sense. Well, now that we've seen the persecution of Jesus, let's move on to our second major heading tonight. Number two, the crucifixion of Jesus. So I want to talk to you just for a couple of minutes about the components of the crucifixion. Let's first look at the crucifixion site. There in verse 22, they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Golgotha, Aramaic for the place of the skull. Either it was shaped like a skull, this certain hill, or there were a lot of skulls lying around. When we think about Golgotha, we think about Calvary because it comes from the Latin Vulgate referring to Golgotha. The word in Latin for skull is calvaria, You might even think of the the word for the the human skull being cranium. And so all of these crucifixions were done outside of the gate, outside of the wall of the city. And so there in ancient Jerusalem, Jesus would have taken this from the praetorium at where he was whipped, this cross, and marched outside of the gate with an entourage of soldiers and and people watching. He left the gate a little bit of, of shame, in a sense, going outside All kind of imagery here, maybe of going outside. In fact, Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews 13, 12 through 14 and says this, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For there we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come all kind of things to think about, all kind of connections and observations to make. Jesus went outside of the city in order to be crucified. I wonder if you too would be willing to go outside of your norm, to go outside of your comfort zone, to go outside of the circle of your comfort in order to identify with the shame of Christ. Well, here we see in verse 23, there was offered to him a calming drug. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. No doubt this was some kind of narcotic to dull the pain, not because they were nice, but to make it easier, possibly to nail him on the cross. What would you rather do, have a a screaming man pulling against you with all of his might, adrenaline kicking in, or would you rather dull someone out so they're somewhat placid in order to crucify them in the proper way. The Romans knew exactly what they're doing, and here we see their form of capital punishment. In verse 24, we read, and they crucified him. Normally, a condemned man was stripped, except for his loincloth, laid on the ground. Both arms outstretched, forearms were nailed to the crossbeam. Then this beam was raised and fastened on an upright post, already struck in the ground, and the victim's feet were nailed to it a wooden peg partway up on the post on which the victim could somewhat lean to and maybe sit on just to relieve a little bit of the support of his body. Remember, they don't want to kill him too quick. Death from extreme exhaustion and thirst was a painful and slow and usually uh, came only after two to three days. Ultimately, the crucified criminal would suffocate, not being able to have the strength to pull up on the nails and to stand up And to sit up in a way that he could grasp air into his lungs. While Jesus is suffering in this agony, we see the callousness of the soldiers. At the end of, or the middle of verse 22, it says, And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. They were dividing up his garments. Here is this man, God's son, in ultimate agony didn't take the myrrh, taken the full pain of the sacrifice for you and for me, and all they can do is sit around and play dominoes. Well, Psalm twenty-two eighteen 18 says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Obviously, they're fulfilling this prophecy. They had become a little too familiar with the process of crucifixion. They were looking at entertainment that would keep their attention Maybe we could pause tonight and just contemplate if maybe we have also become a little bit too familiar with thinking about the cross. We talk about it all the time. Here at our church, we try to emphasize the cross all the time. And sometimes if we're not careful, we become a little bit too familiar where the cross no longer is our attention. And we're kind of drowned out with something else like playing dominoes or doing something on the side because the cross no longer has an impact on us to cause us to stop and to look and to meditate and to give thanks in the price that Jesus paid for all who would repent and believe. Well, God does everything in the right time. Here we see a careful timing even to the crucifixion of verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. John 19, 14 says, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. So this was on the Passover weekend, and this is the first day of the Passover, and at 9 a.m., which would have been here, what verse 25 says, the third hour, 9 a.m., there was a special Passover sacrifice of which only the priesthood could eat. And Jesus was nailed to the cross on the first day of Passover at 9 o'clock in the morning which was the exact same time that this special Passover sacrifice was being offered up by the priest. Here we also see the convicting claim. Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, if we had a chance to look at the other gospels, they all word it a little bit differently. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, and all it would have said, this is Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the of the Jews, no doubt mocking Jesus even further, no doubt trying to shame him that this king could somehow die this gruesome death. And we see Jesus didn't die alone that day. Here we see the company of the crucifixion in verses 27 and 28 we read about, they crucified two robbers with him, one at his right hand and one at his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Well, one of the synoptic Gospels, Luke, records it with a little bit more detail. Just listen as I read Luke 23, 39 through 43. This is what happened. Uh, One of the criminals who uh, who were hanged was hurling abuse at him, saying, "'Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us.' But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, "'Do you not even fear God?' Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Well, why is this here? Why this account of these two robbers being crucified on either side of Jesus. Is it a coincidence? Or is God in his perfect plan, even teaching us some important doctrine? Maybe we could just reflect for a moment and say we deserve to be that thief on the left or the right. Jesus didn't deserve for a moment, not even one slash on his back, but you and I deserve far more. and should have been strung up With him, if you were there that day or I was there that day, we should have been strung up as a thief or as a robber or as an adulterer. Maybe we could also think that we can learn a little bit of doctrine that deathbed confessions can be legitimate. It's an important place to go in scripture when we think about those on their deathbed who seem to come to Christ. While it's not our job to judge, are to know for sure. Certainly we know it can happen that God did it to this thief on this day. It gives us great hope that in your last hour, if you were to turn to Christ, you too could be saved. Maybe also it's a reminder to us that baptism or good works are not required for salvation. Praise God. Or we'd be in big trouble if we had to work our way to heaven. For we know that this thief was not able to do one thing or lift one finger or to be baptized with one drop must last be immersed. And yet, God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, affirms His salvation. What we see next here, there's a little bit of confusion going on around the crucifixion. In verses 29 through 32, we read this, "...those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads and saying, ha!" You, are doing, uh, you who are doing to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were insulting him." Well, here we see there's a little bit of confusion even about what Jesus had really said. They're trying to make this case that Jesus had said that he would destroy the temple, the temple that King Herod the Great built, and that he would rebuild it in three days. It took 46 years to build that temple, and they said there's no way Jesus could rebuild it in, in three simple days. Well, we know from examining John chapter 2, verse 19, that's not what Jesus said at all. Jesus answered them, said, he said, destroy this temple referring to himself, and in three days I will raise it up. What the Jews did not understand, what the real problem is here is obvious. They didn't understand. They didn't have a clue about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They're trying to make different side arguments to distract from the real issue. And they're even talking about if he's really a king, he's got to come down off the cross and save us, and then we'll believe. Well, my friends, if he would have come down off the cross, none of us in this room today would be able to believe. If Jesus had have accepted this temptation by man and come down, which he could have fully done in an instant without any effort, then none of us would be saved. And so this irony is that they're asking him to do that, which would unsave the saved. It's impossible for Jesus to come off the cross. He's fulfilling his perfect plan. God's perfect plan. Jesus is filling to a T, and he will not be deterred. He will not be swayed. And he will not be kept from his mission. And this leads us to our third and final heading tonight is this the death of Christ. We've seen the persecution of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and now, last, the death of Christ. Here we see in verse 33 spiritual darkness. I believe it's symbolized by. The physical darkness that we read in verse 33, while he's there on the cross, when the sixth hour came, that would have been noon of that day, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Check this out. When Jesus was born in the middle of the night, it became light with supernatural light as the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds in the field, Luke 2, 9. But when Jesus died in the middle of the day, it became dark with supernatural darkness as darkness fell over the whole land. And let me tell you something. This was not a natural phenomenon. This was not an eclipse. This was not a sandstorm, as some have said. This was a miraculous event where God is demonstrating his judgment, which will come upon the nation of Israel and all those who will reject Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. And this widespread darkness was even recorded in a report from Pilate to Caesar. And the darkness lasted from noon until 3 p.m. We know throughout the Bible, darkness again often refers to that spiritual darkness. In 1 John 2, 11, "...but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is because the darkness has blinded his eyes." maybe even a prophecy about the crucifixion in the Old Testament uh, book of Amos 8-9, and it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. This is no surprise to God. This is part of His plan, part of the fulfillment of Scripture, part of a, 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 a foreshadowing of what's to come for those who don't come to Christ Not only do we see this this darkness, we also see a sovereign departure. Look at verse 34, we see a sovereign departure. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God didn't turn his back out of disdain for Jesus, for Jesus was perfectly fulfilling the Father's will. God turned his back on the sin that Jesus was dying for. Oh, by the way, that would be your sin and my sin if we would come to Christ. And the most painful thing that Jesus experienced on earth was not being rejected by his own people. It wasn't being abandoned by his disciples that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't being betrayed by Judas with a kiss. It wasn't being denied by Peter. It wasn't being falsely accused by the Sanhedrin. It wasn't being interrogated by Pilate or mocked by Herod. It wasn't even being scourged with the whip or being abused by the soldiers or being forced to carry his own cross or being nailed to that cross. The most painful thing that Jesus experienced was being forsaken by God. So here we see that God is abandoning him Jesus feels, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that God cannot look upon sin, that he must turn from it. And in this instant, Jesus felt the full emotional abandonment of God in this moment. Well, here we see as this is going on, there's also a spiritual delusion. As we see, again, the passerbyers, uh, the, those standing by, trying to make light of what's going on. And in verse 35 and 36, we read this, when some of the bystanders heard it, they began to say, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Some of these Jewish bystanders apparently misunderstood or more likely As a mockery, deliberately misinterpreted Jesus' cry as a call to Elijah. Popular Jewish belief held that Elijah came in times of distress to deliver righteous sufferers. Part of this is because Elijah never died himself, but instead went to heaven in a fiery chariot. There are also some prophecies in the Old Testament, true prophecies, about Elijah showing up at the second coming. And so when Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, which is my God, my God, maybe they confused that with Eli, which could sometimes be a call for Elijah in Hebrew. Well, this claim makes absolutely no sense because it would indicate somehow that Jesus is calling out for Elijah, as if Elijah is stronger than Jesus is, to come get him off the cross. They were just into mystical presumptions presumptions, instead of knowing their Bible. And the fact that Jesus is fulfilling at this point, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, right there in their midst, and yet they get sidetracked about Elijah. Listen carefully to me tonight. When you turn to the laughter to the right, and you try to make an understanding out of things that happen according to your own intellect, and you begin to become mystical and presumptuous instead of looking into Scripture, you can make anything out of anything. And yet when we hold close to our word, uh, the Bible, God's word, we know that uh, Jesus here is not calling for Elijah, but rather calling out for his father. Why have you forsaken me? A fulfillment again of prophecy. And then we see a significant demonstration next here in verses 37 and 38 of kind of the response as we now fully shift from the old covenant to the new covenant, verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed this last And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Well, we got to realize Jesus wasn't killed. In a sense, he was killed. But in a sense, we also know that Jesus gave his life up. I mean, we talk about who killed Jesus. Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? We could say God killed Jesus according to his ultimate plan. But in another sense, Jesus gave his life up. Listen to John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one is taking it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Here we see this significant thing happens as soon as Jesus dies. The very next verse, you see it again, verse 38, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, you know in the temple that veil was thick and that veil was high. And for it to be torn from top to bottom was an act of God, a symbolic act saying that no longer are we living under the old covenant and under the law and no longer do we look to the blood of bulls or goats, symbolic of a coming Christ. But rather, the Lamb of God has now come, and His blood has now been shed, and His sacrifice now takes away the sins of the world for all those who would repent and believe in Him. This veil being torn from top to bottom may not only be a picture of us now coming into the Holy of Holies, having that mediator, Jesus Christ, God's Son, make a way for us to enter in, but I've heard uh, some commentators say that it's also about God's presence coming out. It's also him coming out, as we'll see in full force in Acts 2, if we had time tonight on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming and and the promise being given to believers. We also know in that moment there are other miracles. We don't have time to read it, but in Matthew 27, it talks about how when that veil was torn, tombs were open, bodies of the saints were walking around, uh, those who had fallen asleep were raised, Pretty interesting time. And God's just saying, hey, resurrection power is going to be accomplished in my son, Jesus Christ. And finally, we see a saving decision in verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This day, the day Jesus died, this soldier woke up a dead man, spiritually dead and an enemy of God. And throughout this day, the day Jesus died, is he observed every torture, every lash, every mockery, and he watched closely Jesus who did not utter any threat in response, First Peter 2 tells us. But yet, and trusted himself to him who judges righteously because of Jesus' example given for you and given for me. Not only was Jesus fulfilling our atonement, but he's setting an example on our behalf that we would follow in his steps. And as this soldier watches Jesus throughout this day, the day Jesus died, it seems apparent that God breathes new life in him. It seems apparent that this soldier who watched on this day said, truly this man was the Son of God. What God's chosen people, the Jews, didn't come to see. This Gentile soldier came to see. He came to see because of a sovereign work of God in his heart as he looked intently and watched the example and the sacrifice of our Lord. The day Jesus died was not the worst day, but the best day for you and for me. And as we close tonight, I want you to think with me just one more time about this cry of Jesus who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These may very well be the most somber and serious words to ever be uttered upon the earth. This is the cry of abandonment, This is the cry of Jesus being left all alone. This is the awful cry spoken by Jesus at the time of his greatest need. This is the cry of Jesus hanging on the cross when he was forsaken by God. When David faced death, he could say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Jesus couldn't say this. And for this reason, Jesus, by hanging on this cross, walked that path all by himself. He walked that, to that place as a man who would be forsaken by man and forsaken by God. And it would be impossible for us tonight to fathom all the depths of the meaning that those words contain when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only people who can really understand the depth of agony that our Lord suffered on the cross are those tormented souls who are in hell this very moment. You see, hell, not only is it a literal place of fire and burning, but it also represents, in a sense, the absence of God. We could say it in a real sense that represents the presence of God in his wrath, but certainly in another sense, it's the absence of God. And Jesus, in this moment, is experiencing the abandonment of of God to begin to comprehend what our Lord endured on that moment is beyond us tonight. It is far beyond our understanding and our comprehension. But I can promise you this on this earth, while Jesus was alive, he experienced two things that you will never experience. If you're in Christ tonight, you will never experience the full wrath of God. Jesus did on the cross the full wrath, the full weight of all the sins, of all those that would ever repent and believe were born on Jesus Christ. You will never face that wrath in Jesus. And the second thing that Jesus faced that you will never have to face is the abandonment of God. He will never abandon you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. He will never for a moment disown you. He will never turn away. He will always be with you because to have Christ is to be in the presence of the Lord and you will never be taken out of his presence. In fact, God promises you that as believers... You will always be welcomed into the comfort of his outstretched arms. And on that day that Jesus died on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. On that day, as Jesus faced wrath of God, and his, he was abandoned by God, we need to realize that he did that so that he would bear our sin on his body. God turned the darkness of his back on Jesus so that he could shine the radiance of his countenance upon you. Let's pray together. Father, we're moved tonight by this depiction of And description of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his ultimate sacrifice for us. Tonight, God, we wanna cry, we wanna be humbled, but we wanna shout and we wanna affirm that what Jesus did was done in our place. And so, God, many emotions may be going and swirling through our heads and our hearts tonight. I pray that we would never become so familiar with the cross that we would be distracted playing games when we ought to be meditating on the centerpiece of the universe. And I pray that tonight, God, that we would learn about Jesus' perfect example and his fulfillment, and that we could contemplate throughout this weekend about the day Jesus died. And it would move us into a point of soberness, into a point of repentance, into a point of getting it right by coming to Christ, our Redeemer who is faithful and true. God, we anticipate the celebration of Resurrection Sunday. We can hardly wait. But Lord, over this weekend, I pray that we would think again about how you turned the darkness of your back on Jesus so that you could shine the light of your face on us. Humbled as we are, Lord, we sing to you. We want to commune with you. And we want to remember what you've done out of your love for us tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.